now turn with me to Psalm 119 again. And once you've found it, you can stand. Psalm 119. And I'll read the first eight verses. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's pray that God would bless His Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You would bless it. We ask that You would give Your Spirit now to make application, to give understanding of it as is needed. Lord, we ask that You would deal with us as a father with children. Lord, those of us who are fathers, earthly fathers, wicked fathers, sinful fathers, we know how to give good, give good gifts to our children. And so we know full well that You, far and above anything we could ever hope or imagine, desire to give us good things, the best things, especially Your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you do that for us. Lord, we pray for those who are not here. We pray for safety for those who might be out in the, the rain, working, repairing, rescuing. We pray for those of our own number who are in homes flooded, trying to deal with water and things of that nature. Lord, as we see your mighty power, Lord, we look and, and the very same rain that is life from the sky can at times come in such power that destroys and takes life. Lord, you are so mighty. Lord, let us not forget. Guide us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can see that we have taken a step backwards in Psalm 119, it's, it, it's not my plan, it hasn't been my plan to do a, a sequential walkthrough of this psalm. And you're probably wondering, why would we start with verse, verses 9 to 16, the second stanza, and then go back to the first? And I only wish that there was a creative reason as to why that is, other than the fact that I didn't plan ahead 
But this week, as I was kind of looking back earlier through the week and thinking about what I had preached and what we had studied and looking back over it again and looking around this section of Scripture and prayerfully considering what the Lord would have me to bring, a thought came into my mind that came from a conversation that I heard last Sunday afternoon. I didn't hear the whole conversation. I just heard a thought, and for some reason, as I read the beginning of this psalm, that thought came back into my mind, and I thought, well, that could, that, that's probably a, a common way of thinking. And so I want to begin by setting forth what I think could be a problem. And I'll let you decide if this is a, a problem with you or not. I think it could be a problem within uh, evangelicalism. We consider ourselves, I think, sons and daughters of the Reformation. We would, oftentimes, we would describe ourselves as Reformed Christians over against all of these other markers and, and names that people give themselves because we trace our theological heritage and some of the distinctiveness of what we believe back to the era of the Reformation. So we talk about the Reformation and the Reformed Christians. And I've said many times in our confessional study that it was and, and always has been a, a demarcation of the Reformed over against Romanists, over against even the Lutherans. It was a distinctive mark of, mark of the Reformed to begin with God, start with the nature of God, start with the attributes of God as He has revealed Himself, and then from that begin to decipher the things that God has revealed rather than starting with the things that we have revealed or the things that we can see rather than starting with ourselves and trying to work backwards to God. In other words, what has God clearly said about Himself? And then starting with that, how do I make sense of what seems to be the case in life. Hopefully, as an extension of that belief, we also hold to a high view of God and a low view of man. That, that again, is a, a distinctive mark of Reformed Christianity. And, I, and I, I think that we all strive for that. We can have discussions with others, and we, we can notice very quickly in conversations well, this person doesn't have a very high view of God. They have a high view of man. That's where this problem is rooted. And we, we try to correct that by exalting, having a very high view of God, and lowering our view of man. Right? That's what we do. None of our views of God are ever going to be high enough. None of our views of man will ever be low enough. My fear, however, is that this high view of God and low view of man leads us to develop only a crushing view of man. So we, we read Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3, and we stop. We forget everything else. We, we, we don't think about Romans... We might think about Romans 7 a little bit, but we, we really we don't venture much into Romans 8. And, and begin to deal with what the Spirit of God does in a person. And so we, we are very quick to say, well, well, there's none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understa understands. The, the venom of asps is under our tongues. We're very quick to that, and that's good. But I think what can happen is that leads to, if I can coin a new term, a, a, a doctrine or a view, 
I'm calling hyper-justificationism. Now let me explain that. The doctrine of justification, as our, our men know, we've been studying this on Saturdays for months now. The doctrine of justification teaches that the believer, by faith, faith is the, is the hand which reaches out and takes hold of a person, the Lord Jesus. And upon the act of that saving faith, God imputes to the believer the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Once, and this is all what we would call um, the logical order. It's not chronological. as, as a, we, can't, we couldn't mark this out in time. Because He imputes to the, the believing one the righteousness of Christ and credits that righteousness to them, He can then legally, legally declare them righteous in His court. Not based on their own righteousness, based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. That righteousness is always an alien righteousness. It's always outside of us. There, there never comes a point in the Christian life when we say, well, I'm, this righteousness that God has imputed to me is actually becoming a part of me. It, it always belongs to Christ. It's uh, imputed, not infused. The church of Rome would teach that this, this uh, righteousness and grace is infused into us so that in a very real sense, it is ours. And because of something in us, God can declare us righteous. We don't believe that. The declaration of righteousness that is over the head of the believing saint is based solely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not ours. It's, it's, it's an alien righteousness. Hyper, what I'm calling hyper-justificationism is when the, the waters of the doctrine of justification begin to bubble over the, the, the spillway of justification and they spill over into sanctification. Sanctification is not justification. Sanctification is where God, by the Holy Spirit, indwelling in the believer, works grace in them, works in them both to will and to do according to His good pleasure so that in sanctification the Christian actually works and God works and the Christian can actually walk in actual legitimate righteousness. They do it. God works in me to will. Who's willing? I'm willing. God doesn't will for me. He works it in me. But I will. God works in us to do. Who does the doing? I do the doing. Not God. I do it. And He works it in me. And as that is worked out, it is according to His good pleasure. God looks at the Christian, watches them live, and He says, I'm pleased with that. That's a Christian living. That's sanctification. Now where we confuse these things is where we, we keep that crushing view of man throughout sanctification, where we, we, we're, we never feel okay with saying, that's a righteous person. That's a holy man. We never, we're, we're so afraid to say it 
because we've, we've let justification spill over. They are declared righteous only because of the righteousness of Christ. But as God is making them holy, they are actually holy. And if we don't get that clear, what we, what we end up doing is denying the power of the gospel to change a person. And we deny the doctrine of regeneration that says God took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. God causes that person to obey His statutes and keep His commands. Who's obeying? That person is. Who's keeping the statutes? That person is. And we shouldn't be afraid to, to acknowledge that. So then when we get to Psalm 119 verse 9, we ask the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the, the, my fear is that we go through all of that and we think, well, yeah, that sounds good, but nobody's really pure. That, that concept of purity, that's like a piece of cheese on the outside of a hamster wheel. And we're going to get on this wheel of verses 9 through 16. And we're going to run on it and run on it and run on it and run on it. We're never going to achieve it. It's out there. there. Nobody's holy. Nobody's pure. Nobody's perfect. When the Bible actually says there are people who are holy. And we're going to see in verses 1 through 8 who that is. The solution to this problem is we need to be able to see that Christians, or as Christians, we can in full biblical confidence espouse actual righteousness to a person. Not justifying righteousness. It doesn't add to what Christ has done. This is, this is worked out in sanctification. And when we do that, we're not describing glorified perfection. We're not describing an, a standard of absolute perfectionism in this life where we are rid of the, uh, the presence of sin completely. Again, verse 9, when it asks the question about the young man keeping his way pure, it assumes he's pure. Now he's got to keep it. And that's because verses 1 through 8 describe the reality of Christian living as it relates to the Word of God, and it sets forth that pattern of purity. So I want to open up verses 1 through 8 now under three headings. First, we'll see in verses 1 through 3 a holy expectation. Then in verses 4 and 5, we'll see a heavenly derivation. And then in verses 6 through 8, we will see a hopeful maturation. So first, verses 1 through 3, a holy expectation. These three verses introduce us to a specific group of people, and then it describes the moral character of those people. So the question is, who are these people, and then what do they look like as the psalmist describes them? I'm probably going to say David, as David describes them. There, there's no heading here. I'm going to assume that it's David with, with most commentators. Notice first the subjects that are named in, this, in the opening verses. This is a familiar group of people if you've read the Scriptures at all, if you've read the Psalms especially. You know these people. Verse 1 refers to the blessed. Blessed are those. Verse 2, blessed are those. So the people that we're talking about are the blessed ones. That's the, they're the, the subjects. We've, we've covered this word many times. The word blessed means, literally, happy. Happy are those. These are the happy people. But this is not the happiness that comes from 
finding out that the repairs on your car are not going to cost as much as you thought they were. This is not the happiness that comes from watching the soldier surprise his wife when he's on furlough when she didn't know he was going to be there. It's not that happiness. It's not the happiness that, is, that lights up a child's face when, when they receive a box of powdered donuts. It's not that happiness. It's not a happiness that is caused by temporal, earthly things that goes up and down and up and down based on various circumstances. When the Scripture uses this term, blessedness, it's talking about the inner joy that comes from a relationship with God. God gives this happiness. It doesn't, it doesn't fluctuate. It's there and it stays. The, the Scriptures call it the joy of the Lord. It's something that God does. And so sometimes this happiness will look like a smile on the face. And sometimes it'll just look like a, a sober, pensive consideration. It's not, it's not happiness as defined by the world. It's happiness as defined by God. So if we went back to Psalm 1-1 where we meet these happy ones, these blessed ones. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Remember Psalm 1 lays out before us at the opening of the Psalms, the righteous and the wicked, or in the language of Scripture, the blessed and the wicked. is the blessed man. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this, this word is the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. And what he's doing there is describing a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So what we're reading about when we say blessed are those, blessed are those, we're talking about the children of God. God's special people. Everybody doesn't have this blessedness. This is the special blessedness for God's special people. So then the question is, are you one of God's people? Are you a Christian? The term blessed is, is synonymous with the Christian person. That's how we would talk about it. Are you a Christian? If you say, I'm a Christian, then not only are you characterized by this internal happiness and joy that doesn't fluctuate based on what's happening in the world, but is seated in the nature and character of an unchangeable God, but this passage describes you. Psalm 1 describes you. Notice how these people are described, these blessed ones, beginning at verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Last week we talked about the way. How can a young man keep his way pure? This is the overall pattern and direction of life. These happy ones, these blessed ones, the people of God, their way is blameless, undefiled. 
without defect. In other words, their, the overall pattern of their life is above the charge of defection. So pointing the finger of blame doesn't only mean somebody's blaming me for something I didn't do. Blame also comes if you did do it. These people are blameless. That means they cannot be rightly charged with a sin. They are above reproach in the overall pattern and direction of their life. We, we see in the New Testament, an overseer in Christ's church must be above reproach. That means there should not be two people who can get together with an open Bible and point to his way of life and say, there's a problem. There's a defect in his lifestyle. It's expected. Their way is blameless. And, and what we're seeing here is that really that's what, what we hold elders to, that's just the, the standard that all Christians should be living by. Their way is blameless. Their walk, it says, who walk in the law of the Lord. Their, their walk is the actual carriage of themselves along this pathway. So their way is blameless. The overall direction of their life, you can't bring a charge against it. Nobody can, can rightly, in, in, in righteousness, with the Scriptures, according to God's law, nobody can bring a blame in, in the overall direction. And the way that they carry themselves along that pathway is in the law of the Lord. God's law sets up guardrails on their way and they walk within that. They're, they're not deflecting here and there going outside of God's law here, outside of God's law there, but they're carrying themselves, they're walking according to the law of God in their words, in their actions, in their lifestyle choices, the way that they deal with other people, the way and manner of their speech, their attitudes, even when they don't say anything. The attitudes of their heart is in the law of the Lord. It's not outside of the barriers of the law of the Lord. That's these blessed ones. Verse 2, blessed are those who... Keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. We saw the testimonies of God, when it's used to describe His Word, it's speaking specifically of the fact that God has given a formal, personal self-witness to Himself in His Word. And so these blessed ones keep that. They love to go to God's Word, especially to find out how God has revealed Himself, and they treasure it, they keep it. Very, very much like guarding it in verse 9. Guarding it according to your Word, protecting it. They cherish it. And they seek Him, that is they seek God, with their whole heart. An undivided Seeking after God. Whole heart. They're not given over to all of these other searches. Well, I'm seeking this Monday through Friday, and I'm seeking this on the weekends, but on Sunday I'll seek the Lord. That's not wholehearted. These people seek Him with their whole heart, especially as He's revealed in His Word. In verse 10, we saw that idea claimed, with my whole heart I seek you. 
Here we find out that it's not just this guy. This is a staple of the godly. This is what the blessed ones do. They seek God with their whole heart. The godly see in God's Word His own official self-witness, and so the means by which they can know Him, and then they make it their aim to find Him, and they do not divert from that goal. I'm seeking the Lord with my whole heart. As we continue to see these people described, verse 3, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. So here we have a negative and a positive. Negatively, they do no wrong. What this means in the original is, they do no wrong. It means what it says. They do not do wrong things. Now, to do something in the fullest sense of the term means to take initiative, to have the desire to carry it out, to, to have a purpose and an intention in doing it. The blessed ones don't do that. They don't do wrong. They don't go looking for wrong and set themselves to do it with a purpose. I'm going to do this. Is this sinless perfection? No, we all have sin warring in our members. But the blessed ones do not persist in patterns of sin. It doesn't happen. They do no wrong, but positively they walk in His ways. They carry themselves again along this pathway of blamelessness in the ways of God. They actively display holiness. So their walk is according to the ways of God as described in His Word, not their own ways. They take, when it, when it comes to their initiative to do and their desires to do and the purposes that they have, they do no wrong. They walk in the law of the Lord. They walk in God's ways as they are revealed to us in Scripture. So hopefully what you can see is there is an actual, real-life, holy expectation for the people of God. A holiness without which you will not see God. A holiness that is to be perfected in the fear of God. This is, it's not as though God's throwing this balloon in the sky and we're all chasing after it. As regards sanctification, it's real. It's a real holiness. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. Now, keep all that in mind. Consider Psalm 17, verses 1 to 5. And this will... You see this in reality, but also this begins to lead into some of the implications and why this is so important. Psalm 17, beginning at verse 1, David prays, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Can you pray like that? 
Can you go into the presence of God and say, God, I've, I've got a petition. I've, I have some supplications and I'm going to offer them to you. And I can do that boldly because I know that when you begin to search me, you're going to find nothing. There's a reason that the men of Scripture and men throughout history have had such a boldness in prayer. And there's a reason why we call it a holy boldness. They could go into God's presence knowing that they had a conscience void of offense. It's like a kid who, who disobeys their parents all day, but then they come running to the house when they want to sucker. I want something good, but I'm not going to listen to you any. I only want your good things, your, your, your trinkets, your, your dainties, but I don't want to obey you. There, there's no boldness in those requests. Psalm 23, 3. David, speaking of the Good Shepherd, he says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now, I don't know that any of us have ever read Psalm 23 and said, Well, yeah, He, he leads me in paths of righteousness, but I don't really go. What David, David wasn't saying he actually goes in the paths of righteousness. What David is saying is that the shepherd leads, and I sort of hang back and watch him, through going down the path of, but I'm not going to actually go there. No, that's not what it's saying. He leads, I follow, in the paths of righteousness, holiness. Psalm 26, verses 1 to 5. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. The boldness with which David prays is birthed out of his conscientious ability to say, I don't do that stuff. I'm a changed man. I've come to you as one of your own, living like one of your own, to receive the things that a father gives to a child who's acting like a child of that father. And so he can pray with that boldness. And none of these things, and they're, they're, the Scriptures are littered with this language, but none of it makes any sense if the people of God cannot rightfully lay claim to and expect an actual righteousness in their lives. Spurgeon said, It does not appear to them to be an impossible law, theoretically admirable, but practically absurd, but they walk by it and in it. Again, we're, we're not on a rat wheel chasing something that's not real. It is real. And it characterizes the people of God. I believe if we get this wrong if, and we fail to understand this reality, we're really two steps away from antinomianism. Why, why, would we, why would I strive to keep God's law if there's not really any possible reality of keeping any of it whatsoever, of, of, making, of making no attainments? Why would I strive? Why would I not just sit, live the way I want, and say, well, I'm declared righteous based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I'm fine. But that's not how salvation works. If we get this wrong will fail to draw the distinctive line between justification and sanctification. Sanctification requires progress in holiness by real people in real bodies. When you die, you will be more holy than you were when you were born. If you're a Christian, it, it will happen. God doesn't begin this work and say, man, I really hope it happens. 
I can't wait to, to see if this works out the way I thought it would. No, He does it. If we get this wrong, we fail to see the, the connection between justification and sanctification. Not only, only are they absolutely distinct, but they're never separated. Any person who has saving faith and has been declared righteous based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that person will be sanctified. Other side of the same coin. You'll never find a person born again and justified in the court of God who is not also walking in holiness. Now everybody's not going to have the same pattern, the same rate of growth, but there, there is change. And if we get this wrong, we fail to see that these things are connected. I think this, this type of thinking, the same thinking that leads toward anti-confessional antinomianism, let me explain that. I, I don't like the, the classical reform view of God's law that says that, that God's moral law has an eternally abiding validity to it. It's always binding on all people in all times. Reject that for something else. Throw in whatever idea you might have. That's the same kind of theology that produces what we, what we might call rededication theology. Reject God's law. No expectation for actual holiness. Tell people, pray a prayer. In six months, two years, five years, nothing's changed. Everything's the same. And they are incredibly guilty about their sin, about the fact that they haven't changed. They begin to wonder, nothing happened. Maybe in a church service. They get really burdened about their guilt and their sin. Well, don't tell them they're lost. Don't tell them they were never actually born again. Just... Tell them to try that same thing over again. Just, just pray and, and you know, re-up your commitment to God. The truth is, more than likely, those people were never regenerated. Because if they were, they would be living holy lives. God produces holiness. Again, this has to be taken. I'll qualify this one more time. This has to be taken with all of Scripture. Okay, so if any man says he has no sin... He's a liar and the truth is not in him. So that man is not blameless if he says that. So we're, we're not describing an absolute perfection that will only be attained in glory. We are describing a way of life and a manner of living that people on the outside can't bring an honest charge against them. The blameless. That's how they live. It's holiness. So there's the holy expectation. Notice secondly then... And the points get shorter. A, a heavenly derivation. A heavenly derivation. Verses 4 and 5, the perspective shifts. And, and David is no longer talking about those, blessed are those people, but he turns into himself. And he shows us why and how the saints of God can actually have these high expectations. In verse 4, he points to the divine authority from which this holy way is derived. Verse 4, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. That's a reference to God. He's speaking to God. Our Creator. The God who created us in His image. The God who has designed us to worship Him. He's the one who determined these people are going to live in this way. He's the one who determined this, these creatures, their job is to display my image. 
this God. And we know that the image of God is marred in man because of the fall into sin. We have to understand that in salvation, God doesn't rewrite the script. He doesn't say, well, Adam fell, now I'm going to redeem them completely. Let's come up with another plan. Let's not do image of God, let's do image of kind of moral man. That's not what happens. The pattern remains the same. It is the image of God. We are being renewed after the image of God by God's Spirit within us. And God's Spirit is not going to renew us into an image that is less than the original, but more, greater, beyond what Adam had. You, this God, you commanded as our Creator and our Ruler and our Lord, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And the precepts of God are the detailed prescriptions for how to live that He's given to mankind. You've commanded them. One author describing this word diligently, he translated it muchness. I like that. You've commanded your precepts to be kept with muchness. Much effort, much attention, much striving after the pattern. So it's, when we open the Scriptures, it's not as though we've happened upon a random code of general moral suggestions that really bear no weight of obligation upon us. If I stumbled across a book in the woods written by some guy down here in Stony Point that said, I think people should live like this, I would say, that bears no obligation upon me whatsoever. Throw it in the trash. doesn't matter. But Scripture contains the very moral prescription given to us by our Creator. And so it lays upon us every weight of obligation. All of it is there. We have to give ourselves to His ways. It comes from God. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And then in verse 5, there's a prayer. Another, or a continuation of that same Prayer. We have to remember that this psalm is written from the perspective of a Christian. He writes verse 4, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And after writing verse 4, he doesn't begin to grovel in the dirt. He doesn't bow over and just start licking dirt and pouring ashes on his head and saying, Well, there it is. I'll never do it. I'll never do it. I'm just a worm. I'll never do it. There God is reminding me once again that I cannot do it. That's one use of the law. We'll see in, in our confession. But there are three uses of God's law in the life of a believer. One of them points us to our inability and our need for a Savior. But the other shows us the pattern of life for the godly. And so when he writes verse 4, you've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, he erupts in prayer. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I want that. You commanded it to me and you've, you've set before me this, this labor of keeping the law and I'm not backing down. I want it. I'll take it. He, he erupts in prayers. I call this an eruptive optative. He erupts. Oh! And he opts. That. My ways. He, he craves after this conformity to God's statutes because he sees in them all of the beauty of God Himself. I want to be that. He returns into the heavenly court for power. So 
And that's why I'm calling this heavenly derived. It comes down from God and we receive it and then we turn it right back into the court of heaven. God, give me that. I want it. I want the power to persist in that state of holiness. And now here I want you to see not so much reliance upon God because we'll see that in verse 8, but just that heart attitude. The psalmist, a Christian... How many times do we respond this way when we read God's law? Usually, and, and there is a process where we read it. It shows us our need. It shows us our inability. It points us to Christ. But we don't stop there. We should see Christ, see what He's done for us, see what He's working in us, and then erupt in prayer. I can do that. Lord, help me. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. But usually... We read God's law, and we begin to give all of the caveats of the legal reality. There's God's law. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, but nobody's perfect. And, that's, and we stop there. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Well, maybe someday. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, but that's just not me. Well, then you're just not a Christian. That's what that means. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Not because he has only some external moral obligation or anxiety about obeying it, but because he delights in it. It is his delight. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. So we see that God has spoken... The God who created man in His own image so that man would bear that image has prescribed for us a laborious effort kept diligently with muchness. And for the child of God, that prescription is not grueling. It's not burdensome. It's precious. It's so precious that we ought to erupt with a desirous prayer that God would work in us to do according to His good pleasure. Notice thirdly, a hopeful maturation. Verses 6 to 8. Here we see that we have reason to believe not only that this holiness is practically attainable, but that we, we will also continue on this pathway of holiness. And this pathway is marked by biblical assurance, spiritual worship, and increasing obedience to God. Notice verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Now if you notice the ver verbiage, having my eyes fixed. He's, he's fixed his eyes on the commandments. So the, the end of the sentence actually, it, it logically, precedes the beginning. The last action described leads to the first. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, every one of them. We saw verse 15 last week. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I'm fixed. I, I'm, I'm determined. I'm set. I'm not looking to the right or to the left. I've established my destination and I'm working that way. I've settled it in my heart. I will obey your commandments. He's fixed his eyes on all of the commandments of God. Every one of them. No command of God 
left out. Because if you leave out one, you have denied them all. All your commandments. These blessed ones have a blameless way, an obedient walk. They seek after the Lord. They do no wrong. And they walk according to a godly pattern in every area. There's no area that's left to blame. You say, well, people came up to me after I was born again and would point out things that were wrong in my life. And if you were converted, they changed. You said, you're right. And that was God's grace using the means of grace to reveal to you His commandments. And you changed. Again, this is not absolute perfectionism at a moment in time. But He sets Himself. He fixes His eyes and He says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. We know from personal experience and from Adam and Eve in the garden that sin brings shame. Holiness then removes the shame. Shame is that feeling of reproach that comes when our sin is exposed. It's like Adam and Eve. Whoa. Somebody is seeing something that I'm uncomfortable with. We can be ashamed in ourselves when I see in myself my own sin and I can be ashamed. Maybe nobody else notices it, but it's me and I have shame. It might be a shame before others when, when they see my sin and I realize that they see my sin, that I'm being exposed before men and we can feel shame for that. And there's also a shamedness before God when I realize that I'm, I am and have always been naked and, and exposed before Him and He sees all my sin and I am ashamed in myself, before men, and before God, sin causes shame as it is exposed. And that shame is crippling. Go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. It causes us to run and to hide in fear, to hide ourselves from other men, to hide ourselves from God. We scramble to find anything that might cover up what's being exposed. We don't want to fix it. We just want to cover it up so people aren't seeing it. But, when my eyes are fixed on all of God's commandments, and I'm walking in the law of the Lord, and my way is blameless, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. No fear. My conscience is clear within me, void of offense. Others can bring no charge. And God, who gave the precept, is pleased when I've done that. Now, what's the opposite of shame then? If, I'm, if I will not be put to shame, then what's the positive? What do I get? Well, the opposite of shame is confidence. It's boldness. It's assurance. It's fixing our eyes on all of God's commandments and walking in holiness that produces true biblical assurance before God. While many seem to think that a mature understanding of God's grace produces a relaxed view of God's commandments. We've all met those people, right? I'm, I'm mature. I, I, when I was a young Christian, I used to really get uptight about those details of holiness. But I've, I've moved on. You'll get there. You'll get there. You, you young Christians and your holiness. A lot of people think that, that maturity is growing out of holiness. But the Scriptures are clear that spiritual maturity produces an increased holiness... And that assurance of salvation is a fruit of holiness. When I'm holy, I can be assured God's working something in me. 
It's not me. Biblical assurance is not me convincing myself that I'm saved no matter what I do and no matter what the Bible says. There's no assurance there. It's just a constant trying to convince yourself, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Well, the Word says this. Well, yeah, but I'm a Christian. We want to put out everything God's saying rather than just saying, you know what, I'm not there. That's that's not assurance. Spiritual maturity will manifest in the words of a commentator on Psalm 119, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness, circumspection of conduct, those things give me assurance. There is a sense of of Christian assurance where I look back at what God has done in Christ, His perfect life in the place of sinners, His substitutionary death in the place of sinners, and I receive confidence and assurance from that. But that's not all. Biblical assurance is not merely the conviction that God has done a work in Christ, but that God's work in Christ has come to me. That salvation has come to my house. I'm assured because it came to my house. Not because somebody else got saved. That's great. Salvation has come here. We think of Zacchaeus. Jesus comes to his house. I'm coming to your house today. They... Talk a little bit. Zacchaeus says, that's it. I'm renouncing my ways. I'm paying back all that I've took. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. How do we know that? Because his life was changed. He lived differently. How do we know that salvation has come to us except that we begin to watch for the fruit of that salvation as it is produced in our lives? So there's a biblical assurance that comes from holiness. Very often those who are struggling the most with their assurance, it's because they're trying to hold on to some sin and still find assurance. When you've got to let it go. If you can't let it go, that's assurance that you're not a Christian. You need to be saved. Holiness shows me God's working in me. I'm not a holy person by nature. God's working in me. Verse 7, we see that this pathway will be marked by by true worship. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Now the learning here is the effectual, life-altering teaching of God in the heart. It's not purely cerebral. This is God teaching. It is being taught by God of His righteousness, of His judgments. His righteous decrees, His righteous judgments, His holiness. God teaches that. And when that is taught to the heart, He says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Worship comes out from the heart. True, spiritual worship flows from a heart that is upright, pure, conformed to God's pattern. A heart taught by a righteousness or by a righteous God of His own righteous rules. God has taught me of His righteousness and when I'm taught, I respond in praise. This heart knows the truth of God and worships Him according to what has been learned of God. Now think about that. Praise and worship to God from the heart. A praise and worship to God according to the way God has revealed Himself. 
Now, where else do we learn about that kind of worship? John 4. The hour is coming and is now here when those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, he says. It's not going to be Jerusalem. It's not going to be Samaria. It's going to be a heart worship. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. A heart that is upright according to the way God has revealed himself. That's what this is describing. And again, this is not ultra-spiritual, wishful thinking, dreaming of Beulah land. Well, I can't wait till someday I can worship in spirit and in truth. No, Jesus says if you're a worshiper, you're worshiping in spirit and in truth. That's the only way to worship this God. If you're worshiping outside of spirit and truth, you're not worshiping this God. The true worshipers worship this way. And it comes from an upright heart. Then verse 8, this pathway is marked by a continued dependence. In all of this, we're never left to think that God starts this work and then leaves us to finish it on our own. Like Paul said to the Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The implied answer is, of course not. This holy expectation is hopeful because we're not finding the strength and endurance in ourselves. Verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. He's determined. I'm going to do it. I will keep these. Don't leave me by myself. He's dependent upon the Lord's nearness and the Lord's power to continue. I will do it. But I can't do it by myself. I need you. This is an essential part of Christian maturity. As we grow in holiness, we grow in dependence. If you trace this stanza from the very beginning, blessed are those, blessed are those. There's this, this transition from, from almost an exuberant delight to do not utterly forsake me. Don't leave me by myself. That's Christian maturity. That's how it works. The more you grow, the more you recognize if God takes a step away, I'm gone. Do not utterly forsake me. Even in those times when it feels, when God withdraws the felt sense of His presence, don't utterly forsake me. Don't leave me off forever. Stay near. So in conclusion, while it is true that one, our standing before God is secured formally and finally in the declaration of righteousness based on the imputed righteousness of Christ alone in justification. And, secondly, we will not attain to any type of glorified perfection in this life. We also have to remember that a full gospel does not stop with a past work of God, but it includes the present working of that same omnipotent God by His omnipotent Spirit dwelling in me. God doesn't stop the work. He continues it. He brings it through unto completion. So may we all labor with increased vigor and zeal. What this should do is be an encouragement to labor, to chase after it with zeal, with vigor. I can will and I can do according to His good pleasure. But do not utterly forsake me. Lord, by Your power, 
As God works in us, we work it out. Let's pray.